Hi, this is, this is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, and this is podcast number something, uh, 15 perhaps. And with me from Los Angeles is Joe Nava, a writer, yeah. filmmaker, um, and longtime friend. And Molly Klein is back in New York City. So hi, guys. Hello. Hello, John. I'm very excited to be part of uh, part of this. Thank you for uh, for the invitation. Oh well, it's so nice to it's so nice to finally get this to happen. Um, you know, we were talking before we started recording, um, and this is a kind of segue into movie talk, I guess, that we wanted to touch on. But good, good. Um, you know, we're talking about um, as, because everything has to be about Corona right now. It's yes. Yeah. And the first thing was that I, I heard that Musso and Franks is economically um, in trouble. Yes. The restaurant in Los Angeles, most of you know. And, and, and Harry's Bar in Venice will never and open Harry's again. Bar in Venice. Um, and Musso and Franks is 100 years it's been there. Yeah. My grandfather went there. My father took me there. Oh, I yeah. Took there. Um, and, and I just was struck with, you know, anyway. The, the horror of this thing and, and, and the insanity of it. And, and Joe and I were talking just briefly a, a minute ago about um, the, the sense I get of so many people feeling they're in their own disaster movie. Mm-hmm. And Joe, yeah, mention that you were talking about Joe. <laughs> yeah, there's this meme going around, um, you know, on the uh, on the interwebs, on Facebook, social media about, uh, you know, uh, comparing people who want to reopen to uh, the mayor of Jaws. <laughs> right. <laughs> and not seeing how, you know, how the dangers of suddenly reopening, um, you know, um, it's like, uh, trust the scientists, don't trust the politicians. This is right. what happens when you trust the politicians. You get a shitload of people dead. Yeah. Well, it's like they've, it's like they've, um, they tailored this story on Jaws. You know, it's not, it's like they're, people are recognizing that Jaws is actually the model for the headline that they've created, you know, mm-hmm. and the characters that they're putting out there because immediately, they um, they rolled out that that caricature saying, oh, the Republicans care about you know business, care about the stock market. When the story, the things that were being done had nothing to do with that. They had to do with starving workers, like locking children up at school, closing schools, all this stuff. Schools are not profitable, public schools. Right. So they but they rolled that out, and people responded to it precisely because Jaws is part of our. Um, mythology, right? Of, of yeah. what uh, what counted as business, you know, the the critique of, I mean, it's um, and the and more the movie than the book, right? The book was a little uh, different, but I, I haven't read the book, but uh, I'm not yeah. surprised that you know um, it's a Spielberg film for which we take our our you know our cues from on how to react to uh, to this virus. Or to this whole situation. Yeah, and what the reality is, you know, like what, okay, so what, it's the mayor of a little town who's worried about closing the beach, you know, and that, that um, after Jaws was such a success, there were like a hundred movies that were exactly the same movie. There was one about a grizzly bear. It was the same <laughs> thing. I think it was called Grizzly or, <laughs> you know, Claws or whatever. <laughs> I love that in France, the Jaws is called um, Dawn de la Mer. Teeth of the sea. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, fav- 
I love, you know, that's a really funny um, sort of cocktail party game is, is translations of titles. Yeah, and, the French know, ones so are good. hilarious. Yeah. Because, but Mexico was the best. Yes, all you're titles, right, John. All titles in Mexico have to have death in the title. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that seven years in, in Tibet, was that the totals? Oh, yeah. Yeah, with, that with, somebody brad pitt or something yeah, yeah brad pitt or another one like him and i one was the mexican poster was seven years of death in time <laughs> <laughs> so funny i love that in um that you remember eddie murphy um uh concert film raw yeah and in yeah. um and that's a tough one right because it's a pun but I saw the Italian poster. I think that was my favorite. And they called it Nudo e Crudo. <laughs> <laughs> Naked and raw. Naked yeah. and uncooked. So uh, it's pretty cool. You know, you know John, <laughs> going back to, back to Jaws, I think it was you who was telling me about um, the sort of baby shark. I, perhaps you wrote mm -hmm. it in your blog about the baby shark phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. I, wrote a whole, I wrote a whole article for Off Guardian about the coup in Bolivia, actually, because I was that's right. yeah. the baby shark. That's right. Phenomenon, which um, is astounding, but go on, yeah. And it's interesting where, you know, if you trace back um, all the, you know, sort of break down these, um, um, the, you know, the, uh, the musical notes of baby shark, you can trace it back to uh, the dun dun, 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 oh yeah, um, Jaws. <laughs> yeah. So you you know you already take something that's so reductive, and then you uh, just keep reducing it, reducing it, reducing it, reducing it. Where it not only does it appeal to uh, you know to very small children, but it appear it appeals also to uh, adults who <laughs> want to be like very small children. Yeah, no, it's, it's like an ooworm, you know, it's like somebody said something like it's like the pulse in the wrist, you know, it's like getting yeah. into your, it's like physically finding something in your body and you can't get rid of it. It's mm -hmm. the ultimate earworm, that, yeah. that, that song. And there's a, actually in that piece I wrote, I, I linked to, um, uh, I, th I think it was a woman um, who, who kind of did a, a little blog podcast of her own analyzing the whole phenomenon where it came from and the original guy that made it stuff and she analyzes the elements in the song and how mm -hmm. it's arranged when the like top hat drum enters and it escalates just a little you know the tension mm -hmm. grows and grows it's almost like a, a Rossini crescendo yeah it's a very <laughs> a very degraded uh, parody of a Rossini crescendo but but and, yeah, I mean, I you know, and and I use that for obvious reasons, right? Because it is the ultimate infantilization of of the culture. I mean, it's just it's, now we've got everybody repeating what they. I mean, it's like they're pod people. They're just repeating things they hear on TV over and over that make that have no sense to them. Like they literally don't have sense. They have a, a, a facsimile of sense. One of the like things I've noticed, the curve and all that. Yeah, one of the things I've noticed just very quickly, yeah. and, and it is that um, people are willing to believe that um, the government is <clears throat> exaggerating things. They're willing, obviously, mm. if Trump is involved, to believe there's corruption. They're willing to believe a lot of aspects 
to the to the COVID nineteen story, but they retain this belief. This the thing that seems most mm. difficult to get rid of or or let go of is is the sentimental part of the narrative. Those frontline workers that are sacrificed. Oh yeah, everyone's ashamed. You know, there's a they feel the immediate sense of that they can't. It's the training. It's the training from the fake SJW stuff on 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 social media that people are afraid. Like once it said, "Oh, but what about the vulnerable?" They say right. that word now, the vulnerable. And you know, people were saying that to me. I'm actually in the category. You know, I'm like, and I'm not vulnerable. I, I know I'm I'm in the category of the people who are supposed to die from this, and I'm not going to die from it. And it's you know, um, I mean. It was just a totally false. Yeah, yeah. But, Somebody but, said to me today on, on yeah. social media something about, well, but you know, um, you think it's just like flu symptoms because I had I had shared yeah. CJ Hopkins piece, which is pretty funny, and he said it was just like flu symptoms, and he said no, it's not. Why? There's lung problems lingering. Anybody who's had it has heart disease. All this, and so but I went and looked nonsense. it up to make sure, yeah. and the article he must have read was yeah. one of those things that said. It is possible. Right. There will be, they, you might be at risk. You could possibly, it was Well, just if you have torn. emphysema, every time you get the, uh, of serious flu, your emphysema gets worse. I mean, uh, the flu, I mean, that's with the nature of emphysema. Although, you know, there's also a lot of myths about it. I mean, because I have a little emphysema and I was told that this doesn't get better. And in fact, it does get better. Mine did get better. So, you know, there's a lot of myth about that. But of course, if you have a respiratory injury or illness, you know, you, you, any respiratory inflammation yeah. has the danger that it's going to make whatever you, that your make your condition worse. So it's going to hurt your lungs, but it's no different from flu. I mean, or even a serious cold or even walking through a smoke, you know, or something like that. I mean, things do. I think it's I, what I wanted to do was yeah. elegantly segue from that the idea that people cling to the sentimental to yeah. to to film um, because way back Joe you had you had written me that note about seeing um, um, Antonioni and and Godard and, and yes oh yeah I had a double feature which yeah. uh, so let's sort go of... back to that because I, I there is something all the, among all the things we have lost in this culture. One of the things that we have lost is um, is like seriousness and, and kind of serious um, sentimental free um, I don't want to say sincerity, but that's kind of what it is, but it's mm -hmm. but it's something else as well. Why don't you comment here? Well, I was you know uh, a, a film like uh, La Ventura, which uh, for the most part is um, you know can you, uh, is a largely silent film. It's a very quiet film, um, I think would be very difficult for audiences today to be able to, uh, um, to, under to understand or to relate to. And part of it, I think, has to do with this uh, idea that uh, Chris Rossi had been talking about before, which I, I also hear a lot, is um, this idea of relatability. Like, I can't relate to any of these characters. Right. Um, and in Antonioni films, that is the point. <laughs> you cannot relate to any of these characters. These characters are alienated from themselves, from the land that they come from, uh, from each other. And that is the whole point of, of, um, of 
a film um, like uh, um, Antonioni. Uh, Godard was a little more sentimental though. You know, Godard, uh, especially with Contempt, which is the other film that I watched uh, um, in the double feature with uh, La Ventura, he, uh, he really does put himself very much into it. Um, and he tries to, uh, uh, to be able to relate to, uh, at least to himself and be able to relate to his, uh, his obsession with his girlfriend, uh, Anna Karina, who's one of the most beautiful women on the uh, of grace the screen. And I say that as a homosexual, um, but um, I agree. And I say that as a straight woman, <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, I couldn't agree more. Um, but I think everybody was in love with Anna Karina. I mean, when I oh, yeah. when, when that film came out and I was living in New York and it was way, 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 way back, um, it just, people would just go, I mean, she was something special, you know, mm -hmm. what the camera captured um, in her uh, was, was unique, was special. But, th but that's actually, you know, uh, uh, you are right that uh, when I had told her before that I, that I thought Anna Karina should have been cast in the Bridget Bardot character, um, you're right. Uh, she shouldn't have. Um, and no matter how much Godard tried to turn Bardot into uh, Karina, you know, he gave her that dark wig um, toward the, you know, and he tried to, you know, he tried to um, make her like that. She, she just couldn't. It, or she just couldn't be that character, what he wanted to be and what he wanted her to be. And, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty interesting to me. She doesn't have the vulnerability. Oh, no, absolutely not. But, um, you know, it's interesting because what you were saying, I'm going to tie this into another movie, but a saying about relatability is like a, um, a funny bourgeois commercial uh, twisted version of you know, something that was achieved in 19th century novels where um, uh, you could, um, you know, uh, recognize or have concern about um, some character who's in a condition because that condition is a human condition without, um, you know, questioning whether you approve of them or something, approve of their choices, which is now that thing, or whether you, you identify with that. this identification thing came later. I mean, the whole thing about the 19th century novel is that you are going to be able to understand the villain as well, and then eventually anti-heroes and stuff. And it, it, was, it reminds me of the, this great movie with Anna Karina that um, Jake and I watched the other day by Zerlini, who was a, um, a commie. And it was called, in English, it's called The Camp Followers, which is a mistranslation. In, um, in Italian, it's ironically called Le Soldatesse, which is like the female soldiers. And it's about a bunch of um, uh, Greek, women who were drafted by the Italian fascist forces in Greece um, to be uh, comfort women, prostitutes for the army in Albania. And they're being transported by a, 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 an, Italian, an Italian soldier who's a hero. He's, a, he's, a, he's the, the leading man in the movie. Um, and, but, um, and he's, he's not a fascist. He's, he eventually has to go over to their side, but he's, um, totally repudiated. I mean, everything that he does is problematic. You're not supposed to identify with him, you know, but you are supposed to understand him completely as a human being and a social the representative of, so, of human beings in a social situation. Because the thing is the, um, it's, 
it's a fantastic movie. I hope you won't mind a spoiler, but you know, it's a it's a movie really about the making of a partisan who's not him. It's one of the girls, and but you don't really realize that till the end. Anna Karina is a, is a star, um, but then there's another um, character. It's really a great movie, but that whole idea of identification because you don't really you become you're very much with this hero in the movie. I mean, he's, he's, he's mm -hmm. um, being, um, he's got a fascist, a black shirt in his car, you know, as he's transporting the women, he's just a soldier. And, but um, eventually you come in a, in a, it's a didactic movie, but it's also a brilliant drama, but about, you know, repudiating his weakness, his inability to actually become an anti-fascist, which, one of the women can. And it's just a great movie. I recommend it to everyone. Les Soldatesse, and in English, the camp followers. La, sol, la sola de, sola telse? Le, 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 le like, yeah. which is plural female. Soldatesse, like. Soldatesse, the, the female soldier. Soldieress, yes, the soldier. female soldier. But in English, it, they called it the camp followers, which is, I, you know, it's not a correct. Uh, yeah. translation but mm -hmm. it, by oh. Valerio Zerlini Z-U-R-L-I-N-I -I. and it, it's just it's an incredible movie I mean it, it's um so and it's ambiguous you know it it, it, yes, it but, and, but, but when you you might look right. at it and say you might see a clip of it and say oh it's going to be a it's a melodrama it's sentimental but it's not it has sentiment it has tremendous emotion mm -hmm. it has all the things that you have from a 19th century melodrama in terms of the conflicts that people are in i mean it's a bunch of captive women who have sort of half volunteered and then um and you know and a soul uh, an italian soldier and a, with a fascist um you know uh, along for the ride uh, you know, an ideological, his commander, and um, it's really wonderful. And they, you know, it's just yeah. Well, I think, I, I, the, but that ambivalence, that aspect of an yeah. ambivalence is, is another thing that, because I was thinking as listening to you talk here, and um, the, this idea of relatability, because I remember when I was in Hollywood, they used to say, well, who's the rooting interest? Right, who's, who's the rooting? Who's the root for and I yeah. say, geez, I, you know, I don't know, um, because I kind of always root for everybody, and I, I'm not sure I organize my my brain in such a way that I can even answer that for you. But, you know, you'd have to give them an answer. But, but it it came out of it all started. That kind of trend really began um, in in the '80s in earnest, um, and it went along with Robert McKee's book coming out and and the, the breaking things into three acts and reveals and turnarounds and all that stuff. And um, you look at things now, stuff that comes out of Hollywood now, um, and they, it seems to me, have a very difficult time with, with the idea of ambivalence. Um, it is almost like the movies are borderline personalities. You know, mm -hmm. there's an inability to integrate like love and hate, good and bad, and everything is always one or the other. Which is right, and then you definitely. switch from one to the other. That's right, the as um, as shallow. I remember. But it also a, needs to yeah. be. It also needs to be for almost every character, John. It's like you yeah. can't have you know. And if you do have a very uh, an evil character, he absolutely needs to be evil. Um, you, you get this in uh, you know in the most basic example like this a super superhero film 
Right. You know. Yeah. Um, but uh, but you only know an evil character is evil if they actually lose. If they win, then they're good. Or it's not even good and evil anymore. It's just winners and losers. It's been stripped yeah, it, it of good and evil. Good That's yeah. really interesting. Winners, yeah, it is very much uh, winners and losers. Well, well, if if you're evil and you win, and I probably, if I <clears> thought about this for a length of time, I could come up with examples. You are capable of um, rehabilitation, of being redeemed somehow. But just your winning is, I mean, I think Game of Thrones is like this, right? But it's like, it's Darwinian. It's, it's social Darwinism yeah, in the yeah. most extreme form. So that the, it's like, it's like um, Calvinism. Like we only know who's blessed by God by who wins. So if, even if they appear to us to be evil, like they're torturing people or whatever, but if they're winning, then that's God's blessing. So then it's, yeah, no, it really uh, we, we can't that. judge. It's disabled our judgment, but also not, it, the whole thing wasn't about, I mean, when we were in high school, we weren't taught to identify or not identify, I mean, or, you know, that that's how you judge uh, characters in novels. That's, it was, that was just thought, thought infantile. And then I remember I had a French teacher and somebody, we were reading, I don't know, uh, sort probably a novel and somebody said something about not identifying. And I remember she was a French woman, you know, and it had been a resistant and everything. And she threw chalk at that person, which was not done in those days. <laughs> well, and now, she just was furious, you know? Well, now you yeah. get, um, you know, Ira Glass, um, <clears throat> Ira Glass tweeting uh, saying that King Lear, he just watched King Lear and he can't find it relatable. <laughs> well, you know, I heard this, there was exactly, there was a, um, there was a, 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 not a podcast, a radio show about um, where they're talking about Macbeth, but the opera, and they had that one of the singers on who sang Lady Macbeth, and they talked about, they said, well, let's talk about Lady Macbeth's choices, and then they talked <laughs> about her as a powerful woman, I swear, as a powerful woman whose, you know, objective is to get ahead and who's doing the right thing. Like, there was no, it was, it was surreal, you know, like really they're redeeming Lady Macbeth, you know, but that's the thing. Lady Macbeth was never something like Satan when you were reading her, but you know, her, she's, that her conscience comes to get her for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and they, well, like, no, she's just being, she's trying to make it in a man's world. That's what they were saying. Oh my God. Well, I remember when Shakespeare in Love came out and they, oh. they were talking to, who, who mm. was the was that Ben Affleck that was in that? Yeah. No, no. Um, the younger brother of Ray Fine. Yeah. Right. Was it, rough. Who was the coach? Oh, Ben Affleck. Yes, it was Ben yeah. Affleck. Was the the less the other guy? You're yeah. Right. And he said, "Well, no. One of the things you realize, you know, reading a lot of Shakespeare, is he would have been a great screenwriter." <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, such is the literacy of Hollywood. But we let's talk about Amazon Prime. Oh yes. Some really, I just want to include that because I like what you had to say about. Well, basically, um, I really haven't been watching a lot of new movies recently. Well, first of all, now you really can't unless you get them on uh, on uh, television um, or streaming. But you can't go to theater anymore here because of uh, you know the the plague of the <laughs> of the bubonic plague that's going on. But. Um, um, you know, so everything now, it's like Amazon, Netflix, that's streamable. And, um, you know, I was thinking about this, John, how you were saying that it is incredibly fascistic. And 
I was thinking, what is it about this medium that makes it fascistic? Uh, and I, I realized that a lot of this product really is meant to be consumed quickly. It's, be, it's meant to be consumed on devices. Uh, you're, watching, you're, you're watching shows maybe on your computer or maybe on your, on your phone or your tablet, which is how a lot of uh, younger people watch television now. And there's absolutely no room for space. Whereas in, 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 in cinema, uh, back, you know, I, I, I don't care how bad the film is, you still, you know, there was this idea that your film was going to be shot and it was going to be projected in front of an audience, collectively engaging in your film, even if it's just uh, eating popcorn and laughing at the jokes. But still, you had this community and you shot for an audience um, that's projected onto a film and, I'm sorry, onto a screen a big screen, you don't have that anymore. Yeah. You have uh, people uh, streaming on their television, uh, people on planes watching shows just to kill time on their phones or their, um, their, you know, their computers. And it, it's, it completely um, erases any kind of uh, uh, space, any kind of psychic space for the film to breathe. You know? I think that, that when Andre Bazan was writing, and he's really worth going back and revisiting, you know, but he was talking about X number of frames per second and sitting in the darkened theater and, and hearing the sound of the projector and the rhythm of the projector, all of these things, and this very subtle subliminal um, flickering on the screen, yes. all of this stuff. Now, that's all gone because everything's digitalized, but... Mm -hmm but there still retains like the residue of what was hypnotic about film. In, Absolutely. You know, you have earlier period. And that is what absolutely is gone when you watch stuff on tablets. It's like anti-hypnotic or something. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it, it, there is no sense of sinking into that world somehow. Everything is scanned, viewed as if, um, I don't know, you know, looking it's, at a science experiment or something. And the necessity of these these repeated patterns that they have the formula like it's it was in the eighties that you you got like in Hollywood anyway, like the studio executives and stuff, if they read a script that was original, they thought it was wrong, flawed. Mm -hmm. right. You know, the, because it wasn't it, it was supposed to just be exactly the hit movie that they just saw exactly that in a new guise, you know? And so if they saw something that was, you know, if it took a different turn or something, they just assumed that was a flaw. Yeah, um, it, it, it is, it is, but it is, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, the evolution of, of viewing narrative of storytelling or something on tablets because oh. I, I can't, there is something um, there is something that's when I try to do it that yeah. I, it, the whole experience is so superficial somehow. It's not, it doesn't, nothing feels private or intimate, you know? I, yeah, and it's like a brain implant. I mean, I actually worked on this for the, when I was working for, as a consultant for the um, public broadcasters, you know, just before portability. This is what the topic was, portability, when we're going to get to streaming you know have the infrastructure ready and initially it was like they thought it would the first thing would be like tvs in the back of uh sports utility vans for children to watch they they weren't they didn't know that the phone would come on so fast but they were 
I worked on this and, um, you know, looking at what people thought and they knew, you know, it was, this was very well planned of what people were going to watch, except they thought people that the programs would have to be much shorter. And it turns out that they don't have to be, you know, that you can still watch 20 minutes, you know, or even a movie, you know, people, but they didn't think people would watch anything for more than like five minutes. Mm-hmm. And um, and then uh, Fox actually, I mean Murdoch came out with ninety minute TV, uh, ninety second uh, serials. You know, like it was a, 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 and that was the first thing that was streamed. I, and part of the thing was they did you didn't have the capacity, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, physical the the infrastructure to do this. But it, you know, it was really interesting because it was the idea was you know how do we get every single second? And the thing is once this this exploded the competition where the big media channels had lost their um, dominance, you know, they lost their monopoly. Mm-hmm. You had, this was the, the big thing, like the, the audience had fragmented and then it became scrambling for an extra, you know, half a second. Right. You know, but this, con- this content that is, uh, uh, that is made is, um, <clears throat> it's meant to be binged. It's meant to be yeah. watched in like, you know, five hour increments where you do nothing but just sit on your couch and just let things play. You know, there, there are always these jokes of Netflix reminding you, you know, if, you, uh, if you've fallen asleep, like, do you want to continue? It, it brings up yeah. a prompt, it's, you know, or have, you, have we done our job by putting you to bed and, you know, getting you to go to work tomorrow morning or whatever. But, um, but you know, uh, just just going back to uh, to the space, um, I've I, I've been listening to a lot of Miles Davis recently. I've just been going through all of his work, especially his um, his work in the '70s, um, and I've been listening to it on headphones instead of uh, you know mainly because my partner's asleep and I don't really want to wake him up. But um, one thing you can hear uh, is the space in which everything is, uh, you know, the, these uh, studio albums are recorded. And I'm talking about right. the studio albums. Not except for Someday My album. Prince Will Come. I'm then sorry? You can't, well, except for Someday My Prince Will Come. You can't hear this. You can't hear anything on that one. Isn't that weird? Oh, I haven't, I haven't heard that piece yet. But I've been, uh, I've been hearing, um, I've been listening to Get Up With It. Um, and that's a really, really dark sort of a, um, you know, deep cut Miles Davis album. And um, even though it's really dark, you can still feel the space uh, yeah. that, course, yeah. you know, you, you can hear every instrument that is being recorded. You can hear the synthesis of, of the music within the space. And um, I, I think that is lost now even in music today even in music because everything is so um electronically well, recorded in in popular music it, you know we're at baby shark you know that's, yeah. Where, that's yeah. where we are with 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 popular music and um that was also the 80s though where that when the digital recording came in yeah, because yeah. it was very very obvious now the vi- digital recording is better than it used to be but it's still really not and i'm not that sensitive but it's really not like the vinyl where you hear mm-hmm. a room you hear a room full of people and then it was a very drastic change and then you had the people who came up you know who started who were teenagers and started really developing their their musical taste in the beginning of the CDs and mm-hmm. something is um, wrong, you know, something is not, they're not getting the whole thing, even in, in recordings, it's not at all like live music. Mm-hmm. 
No, um, and and you don't hear the room. That's that's the thing. I remember when when Professor Longhair was recording, um, who's New Orleans pianist, jazz music, you know, um, Creole sort of mm -hmm. icon. And at the end, he said he wanted to have these dancers um, in the recording studio doing something. And, and somebody said, "But nobody's going to hear them, Fess. You know, you can't you can't hear them dancing over there." And you know, his response was, "Yes, you can. Wow. Yes, you can." Uh, and and he's right. You know, you don't yeah. you don't hear it, but you sense it that there's yeah. something you sense there. It. You yeah. and, it's so true. Yeah, we've gotten a very long way away from all of that kind of, um, you know, I don't know the metaphysics of of um, of creation and 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 art and stuff. It, it, the the whole, I mean, I find tablets, for example, just unusable. I can't do it. I can't watch things on my phone. I use my phone strictly to send text messages. Yes. I love um, my tablet actually to read books on. <laughs> Do yeah, you? I, I yeah, do, the I phone is too computer, small. But not Mo much. Molly, how does that compare to reading a book, uh, like just picking up a regular book? I'd rather have a regular book. But at this point, I mean, where I'm getting ready to move again, I've moved around the world schlepping 3,000 books. <laughs> and yeah. I can't, I can't, it's like I've bought these books four times already. I mean, they went to, to England and France and Greece and back. And yeah. that, and, um, so I'm just not, I'm trying not to acquire more paper books, but yeah. it's, no, I much prefer a paper book, but I don't, I'm trying not to acquire, or at least I have to get rid of some before I well, acquire more. A, so yeah, horrible. I mean, I've, tr I've lost probably three over the course of my life, three or four personal libraries that I just had yeah. in places. It's um, too painful. I can't, I, it will break my heart. So now I'm acquiring everything um, digitally. But um, yeah, it's horrible. I mean, I luckily I've I only lost about half of the books that I've owned in my life. I think I have managed to bring some. Like, there's probably two boxes worth of books that have made it all the way through all of my moves, and they have a special place on my shelf because yeah. they're kind of like the survivors. <laughs> the ones that survived. No, I have about. Yeah. I guess I had about a hundred boxes that made it um, all the way with me, but. Um, but you know, I don't even need most of these, but they're like, I, I actually have a bad like collector's mentality about them. Like I have to keep the stupid penguin Tolstoy because I have some other rare, you know, and I should throw it away. I mean, it's ridiculous. I could rebuy these for less well, than- I'll I... tell you a funny story is when <laughs> I was in Poland, when I was living in Krakow, there was an English language bookstore had opened, Masolit Books. Um, and and um, David and Karen Miller ran it, and they were leftists, and they were very cool people, really. It's a whole long saga. Our lives intertwined over that eight-year period. But when I was first there, I they it was a used bookstore, and I said, my God, you know, I have thousands and thousands of books in Los Angeles, um, and you make these trips to America to, to buy pallets worth of, like, use books and ship them over here. Why don't you just pick up mine? I can arrange to have them. I'll donate them <laughs> to the bookstore, right? Yeah. I hate to think of them falling apart in this garage where they are. And they said, oh, great, that'd be great. So we got it together. I organized with somebody in LA and put it on a pallet. And they was put on a railroad car and the railroad car across the country all the way to New Jersey. And it was picked up by David on his trip to New Jersey. And you know they shipped it by ocean freight. <laughs> to 
cargo to, to um, Poland and it was unloaded and it, suddenly it was there at Massillet and they were pricing these books and writing in the used price and suddenly all of this bookstore was full of thousands of John Stepling books. And I had written my name, often I wrote my name very tiny on one of the front pages of yeah. books, right? Just Stepling. I write my book in my, in my books too, yeah. Yeah, and, and so then, you know, <laughs> fast forward um, a couple of years, because I, I moved to Woods. I was at the film school. I was teaching at the film school. So I didn't get to crack off that often, maybe once every couple of months, maybe more than that. But anyway, um, and I realized when I went to Maslow, I was buying, every time I'd go in, I'd buy a book, something, you know, <laughs> one day, because um, I buy things that I don't read immediately, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I buy stuff that I don't read for a year. I was looking through, sitting in Woods, looking through all these books I had bought at Mass. I had bought all my own books back. <laughs> I had my name in them. That's funny. It was like, it was crazy. Well, my taste hasn't uh. changed, I guess. You know, I don't remember owning this obscure piece of like Greek history, but I must have because there's my name. Um, anyway, so so, yeah, it, it's a it's a collector's mania or something. But, well, it's hard to once you have they yeah. certain books go together. I mean, I probably only have a few hundred that are really irreplaceable, mm -hmm. but I'm still carrying around thousands. You know, for no reason. I'm incredibly sentimental with my books. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I don't like going to a library because if I um, if I read a book uh, from the library, I will want to keep that book you have to steal want to it. it yeah i'll have yeah. to steal it it's i i think you develop a, some type of uh <laughs> maybe this is just me but you develop some type of relationship with the book when you you know you it's very tangible you you pick it up you can smell it you see the words you you know yeah you, 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 you remember you, where the passages are in the page oh absolutely you, yeah. you remember I, what part of the page it is and you remember where you were, where you, you know, where you read that passage. You know, yeah. I remember being, you know, I can, I can think of certain passages that I've read in certain books where I was, you know, sitting at a certain cafe in Paris or something. Absolutely. But, uh, you yeah. know, that's, uh, uh, it's, it's the same with music now. Um, but see, that's an interesting spatial thing too. You read books out in the world. I would read in cafes all the time for hours yes. and hours, right? And I had the same experience to remember certain things. You don't have that with computers when you read on computers, you know, even if they're portable laptops, it's not the same. Somehow. No, it's true. Something else, some fake space is blotting out your perception of the real space. That's the mm -hmm. thing. I think a lot of these things are like the, the, I mean, and I remember people were theorizing this, that investment banks were theorizing this and, you know, around the 2000, you know, that the, that the media displaced other experience. It's not just what is going in. It's what it's not letting in. You know, yeah. it's the and they they have a defensive chess player mentality. You know, when that when yeah. with the spectacle, the propaganda, the prop. Why is the propaganda good even when it sucks? Even when nobody is buying it because it's blocking other things. Yeah, that's why. Yes. Yes. You know, they know that they don't have. They know they're not going to. You can't convince everyone. You can't mold people. You can't. You know, you can't put a, a, a thought in somebody's head. You have to work with what is already there, what they produce themselves, but you can block things. You can disrupt um, conversations. That's very interesting. You know, um, 
because back to to why what I'm finding, say, with with not just the the COVID nineteen, mm -hmm. but other other narratives that you know of of American exceptionalism and whatever. Um, <clears throat> why it is that 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 the public in general, people I know, very very smart, literate people I know, will cling to certain aspects: the sentimental part of the story, the bathos of you know this or that kind of trope that appears again and again why certain things are are clung to and and other things are not and and i don't there's no punchline here because i don't know quite but but it's like I the know. propaganda is hooking on to something in them like you have this person and they are worried about their neighbors they're worried about their neighbors who are genuinely vulnerable, right? They're worried about them. So then they right. get this implant that rubs that little spot in them. So that that's what, that's, they attach to that. And yeah. it, it blocks out their, their, the rest of the, the synthetic perception. I mean, that's what the fake left is for. That's why they, they let them, they gave them a lot of latitude now to imitate real left, which they didn't used to do. And right. because they have to block the, re the, the real grasp because nothing, we cannot resist what's going on until we have a, a, a real grasp. There's something, there's something to do with, with um, a, the, a certain desire is being manufactured, I don't know how to put this, to, to in a, a relationship to authority, that there, there's certain institutional things. There's an enormous reluctance in people, these same people that I'm, I'm kind of generalizing about here, an enormous reluctance to, to distrust public institutions, you know, um, in the face they feel of they're expressing themselves. Evidence, yeah, they, but they, they still believe, right? But it's like TV shows because TV shows put them in the position of that that they're creating it, right? That's the suture theory, right? That that you you watch a television show, you feel it's being projected from your own mind. It's your own fantasy. So that right. now they look at reality that way and they think that they are, you know, they say we all the time when they right. mean, you know, what Trump is doing. When they mean the White House, they say, we should do this, we should do this, we need to do this. And that's why they, they're totally disarmed. They don't think of it as somebody else well, you know, that's interesting because that was Malcolm X's favorite comment about the, the, the field nigger and the house nigger. Right? We, we sick boss. Yeah, we sick boss. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> identified with the master, that, you know, you, and, but because I think that there's an element of that. There is a residual element of that. I don't know. There's, there's something about the educated white classes in America that wants to, that loves institutional authority. I don't know how else to put it. They love the FBI, you know, push comes to shove, they're, they will identify the relatabilities with the FBI or with <laughs> Fauci and World Health Organization. Or well, you know, it's, it, it also ties into how you said with the, uh, you know, with these frontline workers that are sentimentalized and are seen as heroes, um, you know, you get the military that are seen Absolutely. as heroes. Um, so, for example, you go to a Dodger to a Dodger game, uh, and they usually, you know, around the third inning, they will parade, um, uh, you know, the military player of the game or or a guest of the game. Uh, he's standing in front of, uh, you know, fifty-two thousand people at Dodger Stadium, and he's, you know, he's waving. And uh, you know, they never bring out the guy who's like 
missing a leg or the guy who who's completely you know tore up by shrapnel and has lost you know his his yeah, and his always... whole family and committed suicide and that story is eliminated from yeah, yeah. Um, right they're yeah, all we'll... just their cliches or visions you know it's just yes, cliches yes, are being right. presented to you about whoever you know whatever you're supposed to root for or whatever and it ha it's just like you know um that well you know on social media like people they are confronting a real event and they have to put it into you know this um degraded formula mm -hmm. right you know right. like who is the even the, this i you know it's it's trump is perfect for this because he's actually he was a a um he was a, a fictional character from a television show right he was um <laughs> the apprentice a semi-fictional character and that's what he is, you know? Yeah. And he knows how to perform this. I wonder if that started with Reagan. I was probably a little too, yeah. too young, but you know, uh, I remember the first time I heard that uh, Reagan was an actor, that he had been an actor before. And I yeah. thought it was like, how did this actor get elected to be, uh, you know, get elected to president of the United States? And now we have right. <laughs> several right, a, a character, later. right? The next yeah. will be the president, oh, Homer Simpson. Homer Simpson yeah. will be the next president of the United States. <laughs> But it's true, like with Reagan, though, he was president of the Screen Actors Guild. I mean, he was an actor, but he was also an agitator, like a right-wing agitator. But right it's interesting wing, yeah. when they, it came out with the, um, it, it came out, you know, they're, they're plotting to make Reagan, because it, it, he was a long shot, you know, so even though he's governor, but they plotting to make him president, they said, you know, our objective, their, his PR firm said our objective is to just make him the, the, um, uh, mascot, not the word, what is the word, the embodiment, the anthropomorphization of America, so that everything that is said against him is actually an assault on America. And they succeeded in doing that for enough of the population to get him elected. He was well, actually Reagan, very unpopular in his presidency. People don't remember that. Yeah, no, it's true. And, and um, one of, it's interesting to, to look at the way history is rewritten starting from the, you know, from the time of Reagan being in office until now. Um, because I remember when he was governor of California, I remember when he was president of the Screen Actors Bill. I remember how everybody hated him. My father hated him. Yeah. Um, and so that fucking nitwit prick, Reagan right wing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was even hated was by George, yeah. George Bush Sr. made fun of him. I mean, yeah. really? but oh. the thing oh, is, yeah. he was, when I, just to finish, I thought he, yeah. when he was governor of California, he was already the front edge, edges of senile. I mean, yeah. he, you know, he was already nodding off and, and yet, you know, he, this label, the great communicator stuff, right? Yeah. I remember thinking, but the guy can barely talk. <laughs> right. But he was having lines written and he, I mean, they thought that was appealing, right? Was that he just seemed so, but yeah. you know, and then there's the famous Woody Allen, you know, in a Woody Allen movie, the joke is that he's got, he's got an impeach, impeach Nixon button and then he has an impeach Reagan button, which shows him how, shows how paranoid he is that he could even imagine that Reagan would ever be president. <laughs> And then, you know, I remember in my high school, like they sent everyone home that day. People were so shocked. Yeah. Um, they were like, you have to go home and think about this. Wow. Um, because yeah. it, was, it was shocking. Like, but it it, was, we yeah. didn't think it would last. We didn't think it would last. I did, we didn't think he would achieve much. 
And there was a fight back. There was fight back. I mean, a lot of what he did was put set, get the ducks in the row for the 90s for Clinton. Clinton closed all the stuff that Reagan uh, put in place. Well, they, 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 certainly it was the rise of the PR firm and, and, and marketing people was associated with Reagan. And, and um, they really went into overdrive. Uh, manufacturing a, a myth for him and a, and a backstory and all of this stuff. And he was presented in a certain light and he was a tall, he looked good riding a horse, all of this stuff. And he had an actress wife and, and um, it was very effective. It ended up being very right. effective. All and the New York Times, and, yeah, and the New York Times. didn't stick, yeah. No, it did. The New York Times that was supposed to hate him would put things in like, oh, and his hairdresser says he has the follicles of a 16-year-old. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you that know, is they, one thing I do remember about Reagan as a kid <laughs> is saying that he had, you know, this, you know, all this hair. He had a real full was, head of hair, yeah. He did, yes. Um, John, I wanted to, and Molly, I wanted to bring up something to you about the uh, the birds because I heard you talking about Hitchcock, and you know sometimes when um, when I hear you talking, I just I just want to jump into the conversation, and I realize <laughs> that I'm not there. But let's um, talk about Hitchcock, yeah. Let's talk about Hitchcock. So um, I I just watched the birds a couple of nights ago. Yeah. And um, first of all, it I think it's a completely underrated film. It's uh, as, mm. as far as Hitch's you know, Hitch's canon is concerned, but um, there's this wonderful scene in the film where, uh, you know, they're in Bodega Bay, uh, shit's, you know, starting to hit the fan, and um, all these people are gathered in, um, in a diner, and everyone has their theories as to what is going on. Uh, you have the scientist, you know, the older, the older uh, biologist woman who's talking about the different types of birds. You have the drunk saying that it's the end of the world. Um, everyone is really trying to figure what uh, figure out what is going on, and it just seemed like the perfect allegory for this coronavirus uh, event, which I I love that you call it that. Um, yeah, really, yeah, that's a true. Uh, yeah, it's it interesting because yeah, ahead. sorry, no, go ahead. I was going to well, say. I was only going to note that one of the things about yeah. the birds, just a quick note, yeah. was that there's no music, there's no score. Yes. Oh, and there was a score that was written that was taken out, right? There was a yeah, Bernard Herrmann yeah. score. Yeah. So, well, uh, Ber uh, Bernard Herrmann. Yeah. And, uh, Bernard Herrmann did. He was like uh, I think they credit him as a um, sound effect. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse but me, they sound effect supervisor. Yeah. But uh, the sound effects in that film are absolutely incredible. And had it not been for the sound design, um, I don't think the film would would have been as effective because. You know, you know, look, looking back on the film, you know, what, 60, 70 years later, I don't know. <laughs> it's um, makes me feel old. Um, it's it's really um, I mean, the, the shots are still uh, beautiful, but, you know, we're accustomed to these fast takes and these, you know, these quick cuts. Um, and I think uh, Hitchcock achieves that specifically with the sound design. You get all the all the screeching, all the you know the birds. Yeah. It's like it's like you know you could you know you could feel them just you know right on on top of you. Um, and in a way, you don't need music at all. You don't need music, and it, it, no, by having the music, fine. it sort of takes out uh, the sentimentalization of 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 the film. You know, because music does bring sometimes well, a, a, more often than not, a lot of emotion. 
especially in Hitchcock. Oh, there's something. There's something in Hitchcock. See, I I remember in walking around New York with all my cinephile friends in, in the 70s when I lived there. We'd see two or three movies a day. Everybody was a big Kaye, you know, reader and mm-hmm. sight and sound, the communist era mm-hmm. of sight and sound. And we'd argue about film and directors and the old tours endlessly. And when it always come up to Hitchcock, I had a pro- I didn't know what I thought about Hitchcock. I was very late coming to Hitchcock in a sense, the same as I was with Cirque. Mm-hmm. And, and, but now when I, but maybe over the last 20 years now, 15, 20 years, I, I profoundly appreciate what I think I wasn't getting before. And there's, because it feels like um, that, that, that in the same way to a certain extent with John Ford, but um, that, that there's a, a human um, scale to uh, the 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 way he films the world mm-hmm. that you don't get anymore. So wow. Howard Hawks yeah. too. You see, like Howard working Hawks. class people going about their level. Yeah, you, you feel they're very easy to engage with that hypnotic, meditative aspect of film. And with Hitchcock, it, it is a human scale, and then there's a secondary kind of recognition as, as you, you're reflecting on it while watching of how, um, how perceptive he is about uh, things like class and, 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 mm-hmm. and gender and all of these things that he's rarely given credit for. I mean, the first half of Psycho is a perfect example of that. Brilliant, brilliant. Which is, which is you know, all in Phoenix and she's gonna, you know, rip off this this money and all of the you know and the, then the big rich texan as it shows up the guy, mm-hmm. you know and and it's about class resentment that whole you know it's the first half of the film is far more interesting to me than the second half of the film actually yeah um well what, what's but, interesting but, about yeah. oh, go ahead john no 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 that's all i was going to say what's really interesting ab- about that film is uh marion crane's um you know janet lee's character uh just um the way she decides to take the uh, to take the money, uh, there's a cut where uh, you know after she leaves work, we cut to her apartment or Hitchcock cuts cuts to her apartment and she's packing, she's getting ready, and he focuses on the money that's on first of all it's on the bed which is kind of already perverse within his the own Hitchcockian world. The money is on the bed, uh, she's in the bathroom getting ready. And you just know what she's going to do. And, you know, she's not, she's thinking about it, but you know, she's going to go with it. She has doubts. She, you know, she's going to go with it. And it, and, and, and it, and it really makes, um, it's like, it, how do I say it? It's it, it just, it, it, it's a very sharp character portrait of, of Marion Crane. At, the, at that point, absolutely is. no. I yeah, and the character portrait is 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 achieved with the, her actual surroundings. That's the amazing yes. thing, right? It's yeah. not achieved with close-ups. It's not achieved. Mm-hmm. It's achieved because it's about. I mean, she is not just an isolated 
action figure. She's a, a, a human being thoroughly in a situation. She's, it's thoroughly yes. dialectical. I don't actually, I, I'm, I have objections to Hitchcock. You know, it's funny. I, I actually took a class with Donald Spoto. I'm sure you all know who Donald Spoto was. He was the first like fan critic. He turned criticism into <laughs> fanboy stuff and he was a Hitchcock fan. Uh -huh. But he he taught he taught us he focused on how uh, how Hitchcock personally tortured all these women, Tippi yes. Hedren being the worst. But yes. um, you know, and it was interesting because the movies that I, I that I love of Hitchcock there are only two: Torn Curtain and uh, and um, Notorious, which is mm -hmm. really great. But they don't have those women that that kind of woman in it. They have Julie Andrews and and In Ingrid Bergman, who, Ingrid Bergman. who are beyond his uh, his powers of torture. But how he tortured these. <laughs> these blonde women. But um, yeah, that, and then you take that, that psycho where it really is about that, her, her total, that she is a, a social function. She's a woman, mm -hmm. but all these things are about, you know, how she's surrounded and visually it's, um, and then this is even more obvious in a, in a less good movie uh, with uh, Tippi Hedren, which is Marnie, but mm -hmm. it's the same beginning, right? She's also this um, chameleon character who's stealing. Right. But it's like her her actual that she's embedded in this situation um, is expressed like everything about her character. You learn from what she's looking at, and not from looking at her. Yeah, that's a very good note. Well, that's it, a strange, perhaps paradoxical thing to say about Hitchcock is that that those films and the storytelling is <clears throat> singularly non-manipulative. Mm -hmm. I mean. And that that's, is a consequence of what I think Molly just described in a sense, because he's always, oh, well, he's the master of suspense and all this. And that's just nonsense. He is, he's very clinical in certain ways um, in, in how he observes the middle class and working class um, and, and, and dispassionate in a sense, but it's, it's not a manipulation. He's watching people in the world. Um, well, what's, uh, you know, to add on to that, onto the issues of class, in, uh, in Rear Window, um, you know, uh, what's his name? Uh, Jimmy Stewart's main problem with not wanting to marry Grace Kelly is the fact that she is uh, too perfect. She's this kind of uh, uptown girl. She goes to fancy dinners. She dresses in, you know, in uh, uh, you know, fancy, fancy dresses. And, um, and he's sort of this, uh, you know, rough and tumble, hard a diaper kind of a, uh, a guy who photographer who travels the world and you know travels with just uh, you know a pair of underwear in his backpack and he's worried of how their uh, you know their lives are going to mesh together um you know i mean we're talking about grace kelly you know right. any man would you know well mostly any man i don't know but you know who uh <laughs> would want to you know instantly marry her and and also you know um Molly, to add to your point, I, I, I know what you, what you mean about Hitchcock of the way he tortured, you know, a lot of his actresses, but um, not but, I think that's a valid, you know, that's a, that's a very valid point. He also did that with, with uh, some of his actors to a lesser extent, yeah, um, yeah. especially with Jimmy Stewart, you know, with Jimmy Stewart. Uh, Montgomery Cliff. Montgomery Cliff, Cary Grant. Um, oh, know. is I Confess a, a Hitchcock movie? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's set in Mont uh, Montreal. Yeah. yeah, and I love I Confess, but part of what's riveting about I Confess is that you know 
Clift is being tortured. He was such a non-Hitchcock actor, you know. Well, that's the thing. A lot. It's interesting when he does have actors because he did want sort of blank. Yeah, yeah. And then when he had actors like what Paul Newman and Julie Andrews, yes. it's a totally different. Like the movie sort of fails because of that because they're not really noir actors or you know they're too animated and methody. But um, right. Right. but it but it's interesting anyway. I mean. But his, the Donald Spoto was this big gossip, you know, he would say that they, um, that he would torture them, not just in the films, but the, these, you know, the blonde goddesses that he got, especially Tippi Hedren, apparently he ruined her career. <laughs> he, dr well, he drove her insane. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's what Vertigo was all about. Vertigo yeah. was just about, about, you know, torturing another woman to become you know, this uh, fetishized version of, of what yeah. you wanted her to be. Um, right. there's, also, there's also something ineffable in, in Hitchcock, and not to sound overly Cahiersist here, but in his mise-en-scene, in that, you know, you can look at stills of certain movies. I can always spot Hitchcock stills. I, mm -hmm. I, it, there's just an in, indelible look to how he composed um, his shots. And and it's not it's not the most dramatic. In fact, it's kind of anti-dramatic in a certain way. But um, but that ineffable thing is just cinematic. I I don't know how to. I have no way to articulate this to you except that I completely understand why Rivette and Godard and all those guys fell in love with Hitchcock. Yeah, and, and studied the the cinematic aspects because. Um, all the way up to like Scorsese, you know, who, who borrows to this day freely from um, from Hitchcock. And well, I, and I get but that it. doesn't seem to use. I mean, he drains it. I mean, that thing about the Hitchcock, all the movies have something, some visual and thematic thing in it that acts as fate, right? That acts as um, a parody of fate, you know, that's mm -hmm. going to determine the clockwork that's going to get you to the end. In Notorious, the movie I love, it's it's her, what is she drinking? Like in the beginning, she's an alcoholic and then she's being poisoned by the coffee. And then the 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 the, the MacGuffin is in a wine bottle in the basement. That's where the, the thing turns around from her being a horrible drunk and on the downward spiral to her being heroic. And on the upward spiral, it's all about that there's something different in the wine. And then, so that it's acting as fate and it's cranking it along and you know you're gonna get to the end because of this object that's there, that's the sort of director's hand in there admitting itself, right? Admitting that he's yeah. controlling this universe. And then when the copy, the people who copy him, they don't get that that's what it is, you know, that it's a, that it's winking, you know, because Hitchcock, of course, his career went on long enough that it became more and more obvious and ironic you know, that he's doing this, you know, his, his right. later stuff became so almost comical, that as you were saying, it's connected to it not being manipulative, it's not emotionally manipulating you, because it's, it's always got this structure. And then when they imitate it, they, they want it to be a sort of um, horror thing, you know, which is all wrong, right? It's to be all a wrong. sort of an embedded uncanniness. And, and it's actually quite a, a almost proto-postmodern thing that he does with these. Well, yeah, and if you look at Frenzy, which is a kind of yeah. animated film. I never yeah. saw it. Frenzy is hysterically funny. It's hilarious. Yeah. Right? Because you have there's that one scene where the cop is the old kind of crusty British cop is 
talking to, I guess, the other policeman on intercom, and he's narrating what you're seeing. And there's something hysterical about it, because he goes, ah, he's, he's going into the room, and you see him going up the stairs. No, he's not, but you've already just seen this fraction of a second before, because right, he stopped. And it's, there's something absolutely brilliant about it, but it's Hitchcock kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink at that point, right? But his comedy, I mean, he's, The Lady Vanishes is funny. Shadow of a Doubt has a lot of funny. I mean, he really yeah. did comedy. He was into I, comedy. Yeah, I think, all, I think all of his films were funny. And um, um, there's a certain perversity which adds to... Uh, uh, to his humor, you know, it's it's again, it's Marion uh, Marion Crane flushing a toilet, which was the first time that you know a toilet had been shown on American film. Um, it's you know, uh, right. you know, Jimmy Stewart using his uh, photo lens to uh, you know try to get a better look at at something, but um, I, it, there's no, this he, perversity. There's well, Shadow of a Doubt is the ultimate perverse Hitchcock. With, um, what's his name? Um, Joseph, uh, Cotton. Jo Joseph Cotton. Yeah, I, Joseph I like Cotton. that maybe. I haven't seen but that. Rear film Window. In a long time. I remember. I was in college when that famously was re-released. John, you remember this, right? That it, it was restored and re-released, and I had not really seen any Hitchcock, and I went to see it, and I hated that movie. I just hated it, but. <laughs> I still, to this day, you don't know how seriously you're supposed to take it because it's this over-the-top Freudian iconography. I mean, he's castrated. Mm -hmm. He's got the cast there in the middle of the screen the whole time. It's about the ring. You know, it's got um, all these themes. In the, and, you, and you just don't know how to... And I remember writing a review of it. I was the review editor of a local newspaper and I, I just trashed it. And everyone was like, you are a Philistine. You are a horrible Philistine because Hitchcock was just coming back. But before that, Hitchcock had been a figure of fun um, in pop, in hip culture, avant-garde culture, because there was the TV show and there yeah, was this yeah. comic gimmick of his fat body and his seeing himself. Mm -hmm. And, you, and to this day, I don't know where um, tonally rear window be, um, belongs. Like, I, I sort of can tell with Vertigo, but is rear window a comedy? Absolutely. Comedy? It's a total comedy. It's, uh, I, I, I think it is. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a comedy that has, you know, elements of suspense. But it's also, um, uh, God, I lost my train of thought. Go, well, go ahead, John. Hitchcock's favorite movie was of his own was Shadow of a of a Doubt. It's great yeah, movie, yeah. And I, I love think that it's movie. The, the most, it's the least comedic of of those films. But I want to, I want to. But then they have it has actual comic interludes. The parents who have this thing about murder. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. it's genuine comedy that is comic relief in a Shakespearean way almost. Right. I mean, right. It, there, it's that it's separate. Film. It's a dark yeah. film, but it's separate. But then it has, that's also that film because the end, she, she goes over to the cops, right? She becomes a, the wife of the cop or that's the promise. Um, and then, but that whole section, that whole end seems almost tacked on like a, like a um, concession. This is hmm. totally ironic. Like you don't know it because it's really dragged you into some Nietzschean place, the movie. And then at the end, it's thoroughly resolved with her finding the, you know, well, her losing her virginity mentally. I think there's something that you look, one of the things I become aware of watching contemporary film, especially coming out of Hollywood, um, 
and and the UK, maybe everywhere these days because it's all international. But I'm very aware of certain scenes that aren't working. That are that I'm, I'm aware of the actors kind of discomfort and lostness. I don't know how to describe it. It's like the, the reality, I can't suspend disbelief suddenly because I'm aware that all the pieces simply don't, are not integrated somehow. And I think it's just because things are rushed, writers are bad, actors mm -hmm. are lazy, all of those mm -hmm. things. But um, when you look at, at Hitchcock or Howard Hawks, there, there is something else that, that in the filmic skill or something, we used to talk about this at the film school with Hawks, that you, you're just always unaware of why he's so good, why he's so effective, why you are affected. Not that he's not profound or, in, or trivial or anything or ideologically problematic, but um, although not necessarily always that at all, but that, that he's incredibly skillful um, and it's not just a matter of technique. It's, it's somehow a sense of like all the guys out of that generation, John Houston and, mm -hmm. and, and had a certain understanding and the actors of, um, of how movie making was about um, laying out the, 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 you know, the geometry of, of narrative somehow. And that has really completely been disrupted now. I mean, I, hmm. I'm astounded at how incoherent um, many narratives are, even for, you know, very large budgeted films where you would think somebody would have noticed these problems. Um, but it lends itself to, uh, it, it creates this quality of, um, what's the, you know, in, in the contemporary audience, there's a, there's a subtle anxiety that comes with that. Um, or, or, or I don't know the word I'm looking for. Um, anxiety or, or discomfort or something that people are not conscious of, but they experience when they're watching a narrative whose, um, you know, cohesion is disintegrating somehow, subtly. Mm. Yeah, I mean, because you're being prodded, right? I mean, and these things, I mean, it's like Umberto Eco said, you know, this is physical, like storytelling is physical. You, it affects you physically. You can't, if you say that you, you know, like um, Oscar Wilde's famous Mo, where he says, you know, um, anyone who hasn't wept at the death of little, little Nell, um, you know, that his joke about it, that, um, that you, you could actually avoid weeping at the death. And he says, no, you can't, you know, like you could hate it later, but you, you <laughs> cry. And um, yeah, and then there was, um, Mark Crispin Miller said, you know, these uh, blockbusters, they just leave you with a vague, angry craving for another one. Like there, <laughs> there's nothing, there's, there's no, because, and it is the narrative. The na even though they go, sometimes go through the formula, they don't actually go through the whole formula. Like they don't take you through all the stages of the thing that you, brings you either a catharsis or some kind of resolution that a melodrama or soap opera does. They, they throw little fragments of it at you, like mm -hmm. a barrage, and, mm -hmm. and they don't cohere. Right. And they, well, they don't. You know, I, 
Um, I, I, I think it has to do also with, you know, those guys, those directors knew where to place the camera and they knew exactly the types of emotions that they wanted uh, to capture within the character from their actors or that sometimes it was just emotion. You know, Hitchcock referred to his actors as cattle where he wanted to move one actor uh, from, you know, from one end of the frame, cross the frame, move down, and that created a type of emotional, um, right. of emotion within the audience, an emotional reaction. I, I don't think many directors today um, know exactly, or, or actually very few know exactly where to place the camera to try well, you know to get that is, type it's, of emotion. It's, it's, I think that's right. And, but I think there is this, um, this other thing about um, uh, uh, that people watch, the makers of film, not just directors, but producers, the whole apparatus, they're terribly confused about why people like what they like and dislike what they like. And I think that if you go back to, you know, from Carlo Ponti to Selznick or something, um, mm -hmm. those guys had a much firmer, clearer idea of, of the elements involved in storytelling, why people responded emotionally to certain things, even if it was sentimental and, and whatnot. Um, and this would lead into a discussion of genre, but which I actually think we should touch on. But um, that, that when I watch, you know, guilty pleasure, escapist, melodrama or noir or crime stuff, and I've said this before, when you get when I get to, if it's a limited series of eight episodes, usually I stop watching around the sixth episode because the rest of it is going to be explaining the story, the hook, the mystery. Right. That's not yeah. why I watched. Yeah. I don't care about that. I care about the people, right? Right, and it's just arbitrary. But yeah, also I think there's a yeah. structure, like, I mean, it's not, um, avowed very often, but there's a structure in all the story formulas. There's an underlying structure, which is our common idea of justice, whether it is, it is fulfilled or thwarted. That is the, that is the um, geography that lies under all storytellings. And now we have no justice. Nobody has a sense of justice. Mm. And so the stories are all arbitrary. <laughs> they don't, yeah. I mean, it's like um, Kurt Vonnegut used to give a famous lecture that you can see it on television. I, I saw it when he, he went to Cornell and I, he came back and lectured and gave this lecture about the development of story structure, you know, and he, he did it sort of comically where he had, he says, you start off with a story that's just a straight line. That's just any kind of story. A guy goes into the woods, he finds a dog, he go, they go swimming, and that's the end of the story. And then he shows the development of the sort of sign curve, you know, to the boy gets girl back, that, you mm -hmm. know, so that's good, or Hamlet, you know, whatever, it's good, or whatever, and um, goes up and down. And then, um, and then, oh no, in Hamlet, it takes it back to the line because you don't know whether anything that happens is good or bad. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's again a straight line. And then he did, he, his funny punchline was, he said, and then the last story, the modernist story is Gregor Samsa wakes up one morning and discovers he's become a giant cockroach. <laughs> yeah. Then he, he, draw, he drew an arrow down to infinity. It's just a story that starts here and then it just goes down. 
But all those structures, you can only write those structures, you can only draw these kinds of stories because underlying them, there is a space, there's a blackboard, there's a notion of justice, you know, yes. what's up, what's down, what's right, what's left, you know, the direction. And now, literally, this has crumbled beneath storytelling. So this is sort of why when the people say, I can't identify with the character, they're not relatable, it no longer even... That we used to sort of know what that meant, even though we thought it was childish. We sort of knew what somebody who would be relatable. And now you just don't know. People are just saying that when they're saying, I'm bored. Right. Well, it used to be um, there were actual, you know, and this is, this is the theater representation put on film and film works much better with a certain verisimilitude and, and all of that. And, um, but there were characters that were actually uh, written that actually said certain things, and there were there were actors that were film. Um, somehow the camera liked them, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I watched something the other day. Speaking of Ben Affleck with Ben Affleck, and I thought, oh my god, how such a visibly <laughs> stupid man became a movie star. <laughs> Yes. Is, is a complete mystery to me. I mean, there's nothing there behind his eyes. It's just blank. It's dead space. Yeah, yeah. And, he's got the and, dumb dog. And, and I, it's a you know, I, I yeah. Why? It's very strange. But you don't. I mean, you know, one could say Rock Hudson was not a great actor, but he was tortured at least. And Cirque understood that. If you tarnished mm -hmm. angels, which in some ways is actually my perversely my favorite Cirque. Um, it's just everybody whispers through the whole movie, you know. Hmm. And it's Rock Hudson asking the little boy, "Do you want a Do you want a Coke?" <laughs> and you think, why Why are they whispering so intensely about going and getting a <laughs> Um But but that was that was the the you know the strangeness perverseness of Cirque. I mean, that was his way of his autopsy of bourgeois conventions and and culture. And um, Hitchcock was doing the same in his strange way. And Hawks, in his strange, mm -hmm. hyper-masculine way, was still dissecting and forensically taking apart, like, bourgeois culture. And you can only do that with a certain foot in reality, in the real world. This goes back to what Molly said, that, that, that you know, um, in, in Psycho, this was a character making choices in a real world somehow mm -hmm. that, that was in the space of of a world which had a job and it was all this stuff and i find one of the failings of contemporary film largely is that there is no world created it's a world of six people you don't believe anything extends beyond the frame it's it's like um it's like the Dick Wolf franchises on TV, you know, Chicago Med, Chicago PD, Chicago yeah. Fire. And, and those characters cross over into the other, you know, in a character from Chicago PD will appear in Chicago Med one episode as if Chicago had a population of 17 people, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. just, it's very strange. and Like and comic yet, books, it's like comic books where there, yeah, there's a tiny group of people in Gotham there's not a lot of people in Gotham. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's Batman and he keeps running into the same criminals. <laughs> oh, exactly. <laughs> exactly that. Well, listen, um, I, we should probably wrap this up. This has been great. And, and I would love to do a second one where we did talk about genre yeah. and, and form more.
Yeah, let's talk about form. I want you to bring up, actually, you know, I just yeah. read the, the manifesto that was supposedly the manifesto of abstract expressionism, this John Graham thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I want to, we should argue about that. Yeah, I would love to. I think that's really important. And it, it also, it also touches on sincerity and cynicism and all of these things that, that um, are, are in, enclosed within within these questions of, of form and genre. I, I would uh, I would love to talk about noir because that's yeah. uh, that's kind of that's uh, that's what I've been watching um, well what I will be watching a lot now I just watched uh, Edgar Gilmer's detour for the first oh, time God. Since, uh, oh wait is that was James Mason uh, that was, no no who, who the one with James with James Mason and Joan Bennett, do you know that one? Yes, it's like a Minotaur that's, one. That's, what a great movie. That's, that's not it. Oh, I don't remember. I have to look that up, but I think that's Ophuls. Um, no, it's, it's, that would be a great topic because yeah. I have much to say about noir and, and a whole- The Reckless uh, Moment, that's the one I'm thinking the of. The Reckless okay. Moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially it with- is Max Ophuls. Especially yeah. with, uh, you know, here in Los Angeles, I've also been reading Mike Davis's book, uh, City of Courts. Oh, so yeah. I'm suddenly kind of a. I'm a footnote yeah. in that book, you know. Are you? Yeah, I'll, look up, I'll look up the index and okay. find me. All right, I uh, I will absolutely. Uh, uh, but you know, I've been uh, um, I've been driving around Los Angeles um, um, all day because that's kind of what my job is right now, and um, I've been delivering food for one of these, uh, you know, for Postmates one of these uh, food delivery services. And I've been going everywhere in Los Angeles and I'm, I'm, I'm realizing, um, you know, this is just an incredibly fascinating place and um, sort of digging into some of the history of it right now, so. That's almost well, like a noir, that's a setup for a noir. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Uh, which is, and I've, I've, I've always been uh, attracted to that genre, so. Uh, well, I, I love, Los Angeles. I mean, I grew up in Los Angeles. And I have a deep love-hate thing, but but it's it's why it pains me to hear of the disappearance of all these places like Mousson Franks or yeah. or Tay um, on Sunset or or um, you know Dupars is gone. A couple of them are gone. The Fairfax, uh, the diner in the Fairfax. Yeah, it's just tragic, and and um, but that's the nature of Los Angeles too. You know, yeah. right. um, yes. it is a strangely transitory, strange, um, fragmented place. Um, and yeah, it, it was the perfect locale in a, in a sense. And Chandler was largely the inventor of a, a certain mythic, mythic aspect of it. But I, for some reason, we, Molly and I were talking about James Kane the other day. I was thinking about Mildred mm -hmm. Pierce, um, which is, which is a, a film both the the Todd Haynes version and the original film are very worth talking about. The Todd Haynes is a very good. It is one of the, the HBO one, right? Good noirs, mm -hmm. um, and it's tragic. You know, he went for something tragic, and he kind of got it. Um, it it's worth um, a discussion. Anyway, okay, well, we'll do that next time. That'll be great. Okay, right. great. great. And thank, thank you. you. Guys. Let me. Yeah. Let me just add that the the aesthetic resistance pod plays um, 
in today's parlance, will the first one drops tomorrow. All right. Um, which is my piece, The Assassination of Lincoln, and then other pieces every other day for um, the next six or seven days. I think we have five plays in, in round one. They're all little short one acts, um, plays under quarantine. And um, I think they're very good. So um, everybody should listen to that. Thanks, Molly. Thanks. Thank Joe. you. Yes, thank you, Molly. Thank you, yeah, John. Yeah, next time. Yeah, oh, I loved so it. We'll do part two for sure, for sure. Okay. 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 Talk right, to you later. Take care, everybody. You too. Bye-bye.